Greetings and welcome to the 5 by your favorite source for rapid-fire board game reviews. This episode, Ruwal starts us off with a speculative look at QE. I pay a visit to Parks. Mason lays out his thoughts on Texas 42. Sarah is joined by some special guests to review Sparkle Kitty. And Meeple Lady plays the episode Caboose with Irish Gage. The year is 2008. The global financial crisis has struck with various industries on the brink of collapse. Central banks in different countries bail out these companies to stimulate the economy, but this quantitative easing, or QE for short, leaves these banks vulnerable to their own financial ruin. Can you bail out these too-big-to-fail companies without trashing your own economy? Friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's look at QE, a bidding game by designer Gavin Burmam, with art by Anka Gavril, and published by BoardGameTables.com in 2019. In QE, three to five players take on the role of the Central Bank of the United States, United Kingdom, China, Japan, or the European Union. Each turn, you bid on one of the too-big-to-fail companies, represented by coaster-like company tiles. The auctioneer starts the bidding by writing an amount and revealing it. The other players secretly write their bids and pass them to the auctioneer. After the auctioneer looks at all bids, they announce the winner, but not the amount which they'll write on the back of the company tile and hand back to the winner. All other bid tiles are handed back to their respective players without revealing any bids. The next player becomes auctioneer, and play continues until all company tiles have been taken. Since you're the central bank of your nation, you can bid any amount. Yes, any amount. Write what you want, from $1 to $1 billion to $1 trillion or even more. After all company tiles have been auctioned off, tally the points on the tiles you've won. There are victory points listed on each tile, and you also receive points for the various sets of industry you've collected, depending on whether you have the same or different types. If you buy companies that match your country, then you'll receive additional points. Each player also has a secret industry that's revealed at the end and will help raise your victory point totals. Finally, every player totals up how much they've spent. The player who's spent the least receives additional victory points, but the player who's spent the most money has ruined their country's economy and is eliminated from the game. Of the remaining players, the player with the most victory points is the winner. QE has been an overwhelming hit with my gaming group this year, and with all of the new gamers I introduce it to. It's easy to get people into playing QE when you reassure players that yes, you may bid whatever you want. It's such an interesting premise that ensures this game gets lots of attention when it hits the table. Gameplay is easy to understand, but figuring out what to do can take a few turns or even an entire game. Thankfully, QE usually only takes 30 minutes and can easily be played again in the same night. While auction games aren't my favorite, there are two by Rainer Knizia that I really enjoy, Raw and High Society. Both put a unique spin on the bidding mechanism. In Raw, bidding is incorporated with push-your-luck and set-collection mechanisms. In High Society, at the end of the game, the player who spent the least amount of money automatically loses. QE cleverly incorporates aspects of both Kinesia classics, unlimited bid amounts with set collection and player elimination based on amounts spent. Each company tile is worth 1-4 to four victory points and represents a different country. A tile also has one of five industries, agriculture, housing, government, finance, and manufacturing, and players have plenty of opportunities to focus on monopolizing a set of the same industry or diversifying a set of different industries. Since only the auctioneer and the winning bidder know the exact amount paid for the current tile, it makes for an interesting game of deduction. When it's your turn to be the auctioneer, 
You and the winner are the only ones who know the winning amount and you'll use this information as the game progresses. Likewise, when it's not your turn and you see someone win a tile, you'll try to deduce how much they've spent. So, if Marlon opened the bidding with $100,000, then how much more did Daryl bid when he won the tile? There are two additional bidding twists as well. You may never bid the exact amount as the auctioneer. You must always bid higher or lower. And, once per round, you may bid zero, which gives you two victory points at the end of the game. I love how there's never any downtime. Even when you don't win a tile, you're still trying to do some mental math to figure out how much everyone spent. Or, if nobody outbid the opening bid, then everybody knows exactly what the auctioneer just paid for that tile. The tension is there throughout the game, since there's no running tally of what everyone spent. QE is a fascinating game that's part deduction and part light math, with bits of information gained each round. As the game progresses, you'll have a mental ballpark figure of what's everyone spent, and if you're within that range. The end, though, can be surprising, with a nice dramatic moment when totals are compared and a winner declared. QE has been one of my favorites of 2019, and it's earned its way into my regular rotation of games that I bring to game night. Thanks to BoardGameTables.com for the review copy of QE. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. In what I can only assume was coincidental timing, Parks hit Kickstarter right when I was in the middle of planning our 20th anniversary trip to Acadia National Park. So the theme instantly grabbed me, and then I saw the amazing art. So I was ready. Ready to break my vow to rein in my Kickstarter spending. But then, as luck would have it, my brother-in-law offered to back any new game for me on Kickstarter, and while maybe I should have held up for a more expensive game, there was no game I was more looking forward to trying at the time than Parks. So, I can't speak to the experience as a backer for Parks, but I can speak to the gameplay. Parks is by Henry Audubon and is a 1-5 player, 40-60 minute game of drooling over gorgeous art from the 59 Parks print series. Sorry, I mean, of moving your two hikers down a path of different trails to collect tokens and possibly pictures, so that you can trade those tokens in for gear, to visit Parks for points, or to fill your canteens for special abilities. Really, collecting resources is the main mechanism of the game. As you travel, you will land on different tiles. Like classic path games, think to Kaido, you move in one direction down the path, collecting what you need. Sunshine, water, forests, and mountains. And not landing on tiles already occupied by other players. For instance, if you visit the valley, you collect two sunshine tokens, whereas if you visit the forest, you get only one forest token. Most resources you just put into your personal stockpile and then spend at the end of the season. Water tokens that you can spend when you get them to fill your canteens. Canteens are like many special abilities in the game. They let you spend water to get more rare resources like forests or mountains, trade for two other resources that you need, or trade one resource for a wildlife, which is the fifth resource. There aren't many ways to get wildlife. Usually you have to go to that specific tile or use a canteen. These resources are amazing. Not just because they are wild resources. Yes, I get the pun but because the wildlife tokens are all adorably stained animal silhouettes. We love them. The last location doesn't give you resources. It's the vista for taking pictures or taking another canteen card. Pictures are worth points at the end of the game, but only one point each. They are also key to completing your objective card you got at the beginning of the game. Usually those are like collect X number of this type of park card and take this many pictures for two to three more points. But taking pictures costs you one resource if you already have the camera in your possession, or two resources if you need to take the camera from someone else. 
On the last tile in the path, players can either reserve a park to visit later, buy gear with sunshine tokens, gear gives you special abilities, or visit a park. To visit a park, you turn in the tokens shown on the bottom of the card and then put it into your score pile. At the end of the game, you'll score the number of points shown on the card, which is like 2-5 to five points. Once everyone's hikers have reached the end of the path, that ends the season. Reset the path by adding in a new random tile, shuffle them up, reveal the next season card, and start down the path again. Other than the art, there's one main thing that sets parks apart from most path games, and that is the use of the campfire tokens. Each player has one and can extinguish their campfire to visit a tile already occupied by another hiker. You can actually do it twice each season as your campfire resets when either of your hikers reach the last tile in the path. So using your campfire strategically is key to doing well in parks, especially at higher player counts. I'll be honest, I was skeptical parks would work well at a full 5 player game, as I hate overly restrictive games, but I loved it at 5 players, and this campfire mechanism was a large part of that. At the other end, there is solo play, which I also tried. It maybe could have been streamlined a pinch by using dedicated solo cards for movement rather than using the gear costs, but it works well and made for a very engaging solo game. Okay, so I said the art is great, but what about the rest of the components? They are stellar. The cards are nice, the wooden tokens are amazing, the first player marker and camera token aren't necessary, but are slick and really add to the feel of the game, and the insert is one of the best I've ever seen. So what don't I like? Because we all know I love to nitpick things. Well, let's be frank here. The theme is great, but there are a few minor bits that left me scratching my head. Why am I the only one who can visit that park? Why am I collecting Sunshine and Forest to visit Yellowstone? Kinda works, but yeah, don't overthink it. Also, the picture concept is meh. I've never felt they really mattered, unless your year objective card requires them. Even then, those objective cards are such a small part of your overall score, I can't help but wonder if they're worth it. Sure, meet those objectives if you can, but if you can't, I wouldn't worry about it. Not really a gripe, but I also think people should realize that Parks is a game that takes more than one play to get. All my gamer friends got it immediately, but for less experienced players, it's taken at least half a game for them to get it. But then, I'm often not the most skilled teacher. But that said, Parks is easily a top game for me that way exceeded my expectations. I hope that none of my family is listening, because they'll be spoiled on the fact that I'm probably sending them copies of Parks for Christmas this year. I liked it that much. If you like peaceful games, amazing art, great components, and a fun time, then I highly recommend you check out Parks. So, until next time, if you want to discuss parks or your favorite national park, you're welcome to reach out to me on Twitter, at Mike Grizzly. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Texas 42. To the best of my knowledge, there aren't a lot of games played regularly today that are the direct result of religious zealotry besides the domino game 42. Invented by two teenage brothers in 1887 in what was then Trap Spring outside of Fort Worth, 42 is today the national game of the great state of Texas. 42 is a trick-taking game played with the standard double-six set of dominoes. The story goes that the Evans brothers were caught with a deck of cards, a serious infraction in many Baptist households. For non-religious or non-Southern folks, Baptists here in the South and Southwest are a historically a very strict and very devout sect of Protestantism. Cards, you see, are used for gambling, and any money that you don't work to earn is a mortal sin. This brand of holy rolling is still very much in effect today for a lot of extremely conservative churches. No dancing, no drinking, no card games allowed. So back in the 1880s, the Evans brothers wanted to play a trick-taking game, but they couldn't use cards. Since dominoes were okay, don't get into the underlying logic, just accept it. The boys figured out a way to play something like whist with a double-six set. They taught the game to friends and family. It spread organically, as semi-folk games often do, 
And by 1915, it had spread across Texas and surrounding states and was popular enough even for someone else to claim to have invented it themselves in the Wills Point Chronicle. It is, of course, possible that there are two independently created trick-taking domino games that came out of Texas in the late 19th century, so who knows. If I'm making connections wearing my James Burke hat, and I often am, I would surmise one of the reasons for the popularity of 42 may be climatological. Look, it's very windy down here in the Mid-South, and it's very hot in the summer. Most houses constructed here before the 1930s have large porches which people spend considerable amounts of time on in all but our roughly four cold months every year. I can tell you from first-hand experience that trying to play cards outside in Oklahoma is a difficult prospect unless you're using paperweights. So, of course, a game that satisfies the then-raging vogue for card parties and contract whist, and of course, later, bridge, uh, see my segment on German whist from a previous episode, while passing hot summer afternoons otherwise spent languishing on the porch would be a huge hit in Central Texas 50 years before anyone had air conditioning. Texas 42 takes its name from the possible number of points in a hand. In a double-six set of dominoes, there are 35 points from the fives. That's the 3-2, the 4-1, the 5-blank, the 6-4, and the double-five. And since there are 28 dominoes and 4 players, there are 7 points from winning the tricks for a total of 42 points. Like most contract whist-style games, you shuffle, or shake, the dominoes, deal 7 to each player, and then bid. And like many other bidding trick-takers, the bidding is a significant portion of the gameplay. Minimum bid in 42 is 30 points. So if you don't think you've got that, you can pass and spend the rest of the hand either trying to support your partner across the table or set your opponents. That is, winning enough points yourselves to prevent them from making their bid. The goal of the game is to get seven marks, which is basically winning seven hands. There's some advanced bidding strategy where you can bid the marks themselves, but I don't want to get into that here. If you're interested in learning more, I'll have some further reading at the end. The player who bid the highest gets to choose the trump suit and then lead. You must follow suit and the double of any number always wins in that suit. That's a real stumbling block for new players and took me a while to wrap my head around, but the double one beats the one six. I'm not here to drag you into the complex, and frankly way over my head, World of 42 strategy. But I assure you that it's deep, and it's wide, and there's a ton of nuance and disagreement, and apparently a fair number of regular bar fights. 42 has maintained its regional devotion for over a century in part because it's a great barroom game. A spilled beer may ruin a deck of cards, but doesn't affect a set of dominoes. And Texans love bar rooms. In particular, at the Dixie Chicken in College Station, the spiritual home of the National 42 Players Association. For the better part of the last 50 years, the Dixie Chicken has hosted monthly 42 tournaments. They play dominoes every day, and they sell a great custom set, too. Speaking of the dominoes themselves, while you're not going to go out and buy the game, I can highly recommend a fabulous brand of dominoes made in Waco, Texas from the mid-50s to the early 2000s. Purimco marble-like dominoes were the, and I mean the, American domino. They're the dominoes.com folks today, dominoes with an E, not like the pizza, and sadly, their original manufacturing equipment no longer functions. But if you really want to get your hands on the best dominoes, you'll probably need to eBay them. A vintage set will cost you somewhere between $20 and $30 shipped, depending on the color you want, but I assure you that they are worth it. Of course, if you want to cheap out, any set of dominoes will do, and you can probably find them at the thrift store if you don't own some already. If you're looking to buy, I would avoid wooden dominoes, as they don't have a satisfying feel, and they don't make a nice sound when you shake them. This time of year, many of you will see family you don't see much, and so I would highly encourage you to ask any of the old folks you know what games they like to play, instead of trying to convince your great uncle Gene that he will really like terraforming Mars. I think you might be surprised to find a new cribbage partner, a Jim Rummy opponent, or even a full table for Texas 42. For further information about this great domino game, I'd suggest the websites austin42.org, texas42.net, any of the numerous PC or app-based versions of 42, and of course, my friends at the National 42 Players Association. You can find them on the web at n42pa.org or on Twitter at n42pa. 
So who should play Texas 42? People looking for a partnership domino game. People who love trick-taking games and want to try something new. People who want to play spades or hearts on a windy day. And people who are religiously forbidden from using playing cards. I give Texas 42 12 out of 12 ounces of Lone Star spilled when your uncle knocked over the bottle while telling his getting arrested in Dallas in the 80s story again. Happy holidays. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. Sparkle Kitty is a game about princesses saying magic words to rescue themselves from colorful towers. And what's not to love about that? Designed by Manuel Vega and published by Breaking Games in 2017, it's been a favorite for my group to kick off a game night. And I've got my friends Phoebe and Ruby here to help me review Sparkle Kitty. Now, Phoebe, I don't know if you remember this, but you taught me how to play Sparkle Kitty. We're not going to teach the game right now, but can you briefly describe what Sparkle Kitty is about? It's basically a game where you build your tower with cards from your hand, and then you use you make spells to free your princess from your tower at the end of the game. So how do you make the spells? It's like funny words, and you have to say the spells. It's really fun to like hear the different spells, because sometimes they're super-duper silly. So what are some examples of the spells you might have to say? Glitter Panda, or Fuzzy Frog, or Cupcake Monster. What do you like best about Sparkle Kitty? What makes it fun? I like the fact that like all the spells are really funny. It's fun because we got crowns and you can wear crowns and make it really fun. <laughs> yes, the tiaras. When our group plays together, we always all wear tiaras. So what is that about? Is there a rule about wearing tiaras? We wear the crowns so we're more into the game. Because if you have a crown, you feel more like a princess. Does it work? Do you feel like a princess when you play? Kind of. So the rule for whoever goes first is whoever is most dressed like a princess. So we decided to wear crowns so that we're like that. <laughs> all of the characters in Sparkle Kitty are princesses. What do you think about that? I really like that they're all princesses because it's really feminine and I like that. The art was by Leah Artwick and I love how the princesses are all different. Different colors, different body shapes, different personalities. My favorite is Princess Pluot. Do you have a favorite princess? My favorite's Princess Bookworm. I'm a bookworm too, so I like it. <laughs> My favorite princess is probably Princess Violet because she's like really fun and playful and I love her purple hair. Some people say that boys will not play a game where they have to play a girl character, but all the characters in Sparkle Kitty are princesses. Do you think Sparkle Kitty is for boys too? I think it's for boys too. We have a lot of fun in our group um, playing with both boys and girls. I know some boys who play it and love it and I think it can be for both genders. And if you're horrible, you don't have to wear the crown. And is Sparkle Kitty a kid's game or is it for adults too? I think I know a lot of grown-ups who love it and I think it can be for both. Although it is a good game if you've never played a game before or you're just starting to play games. It's a really simple game, so it's easy for younger kids to play, but it's really fun for adults too. When you play Sparkle Kitty, are you trying to win or are you just trying to have fun? It's always nice to win, but I like having fun more. Is there anything about Sparkle Kitty that's confusing or tricky, like anything that makes it hard to play? It's a little bit hard when you have the special code, the black cards, because you ha then you have to say all three. And if you don't say all three, then you get called out and they can make you add one onto your tower. And that's really hard because sometimes you forget to say the third word. When you and I play Sparkle Kitty, it's always been a pretty big group, at least six people. What's the smallest group you've ever played with? We've played with two before, and I think it's better with a bigger group because then you have choices of who to like put your spells on and stuff. 
I think it's better with a big group because it's funner to like see how it changes and it's more unpredictable. All right, we're almost done. Last question. Do you have any final thoughts? One last thing you want people to know about Sparkle Kitty? I would like them to know that it's really fun and that there was an expansion that you can play with. So what does the expansion have in it? The expansion just has another symbol, which is, um, and the symbol is a chemistry symbol. And it also has two new characters, Princess Fix-It and Princess... Dr. Princess is one of the new ones, right? Oh yeah, Dr. Princess. I would like people to know that um, you don't have to wear the tiara. Because some people don't like wearing crowns because they, they don't like how it feels. So I think that it's very important that you don't have to wear the crown because some people think they have to wear the crown. And that's why they don't play. But it, you can still play without wearing a crown. I think it's a really fun game and anybody can play it. And even though all the characters are girls, it's really fun for anybody to play. And that's Sparkle Kitty. My name is Sarah, and thank you to Phoebe and Ruby for joining me on the podcast. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall, and find a picture of all three of us wearing our crowns. Yay! We did it! Yay! The types of train games I often play usually involves carving out an entire day of gaming for one single game. Our games last anywhere from 6 to 10 hours, and it's often uproarious fun looking at tiles, stocks, and bank accounts. So when I saw a train game that plays in about an hour, especially one that had a two-page rulebook, I had to ask myself, what makes a train game a train game? Little train pieces? Yes. A map? Yes. All kinds of stocks? Heck yes. Irish Gage, published by Capstone Games in 2019, is a three-to-five player stock train game. It was originally released in 2007 by Winsome Games, a small publisher of minimalist train games. The game is designed by Tom Russell, with artwork by Ian O'Toole. Irish Gage is by no means a heavy train game, but it still scratches the itch of a train game when you only have an hour to play, such as that time of night when game day is winding down, plus it plays nicely with five players. And did I mention that the rulebook is only two pages? To win, a player must have the most cash on hand, including the original value of their stocks, at the end of the game. Since the game only plays for about an hour, every single action is extremely important, and for reasons I'll explain later, each game I've played has been wildly different. On your turn, you can do one of four actions. The first one, you can build trains for a company whose stocks you own by spending up to three action points. The terrain type and whether the hex already has a train present determines the cost of the action points. Another action you can do is put a stock up for auction. This can sometimes get tricky, because you may get outbid on a stock you want, and then you may have wasted your turn attempting to auction a share. But stocks are crucial for gaining cash to buy more stocks later, as well as adding to your cash at the end of the game. The third action you can do is place a special interest cube in a town by selecting a cube from the bag to place onto the map. The last action you can do is call for dividends. This is by far my favorite action of the game, not that I'd recommend doing it on each of your turns, but there is something so supremely satisfying about choosing this action and screwing over an opponent that needs just one more turn to build out their network. When you call for dividends, you blindly draw three cubes from the bag. The colors of the cubes indicate which cities are paying out, and each company gets paid dividends only if their route connects to a paying city in a town or connects two paying cities. The amount gained is split among the shareholders. Whenever a player calls for dividends, 
the moment never fails to reenact the excitement and tension of gathering around a Las Vegas craps table and waiting for the dice to land. More often than not, during our games, chanting occurs, something to the tune of dividends, dividends. Since there are exactly 30 dividend cubes, 10 in each color, you can calculate the odds of which cubes could come out of the bank. When those cubes land on the board, there is both joy and disappointment. And seriously, this action adds so much fun and variety to every single game. Gameplay continues for about an hour, sometimes even faster if someone wants to run the clock quicker by constantly selecting the dividends action on their turn. When no more cubes are in the bag, by either through the calling dividends action or by placing them on the board through the special interest action, the game ends. Irish Gage comes complete with these sturdy cards for both the stocks and the cash, as well as these adorable tiny little train pieces that kind of look like candy. It's all packed in a slim box that's easy to transport. My only gripes are that I wish the board itself actually listed the four different actions, which is odd since they printed out almost everything else. There's even a large stock chart for those who need help dividing payouts, but we never use it because it's not hard to divide things by three, four, or five. Plus, there's a typo on the chart. You can't see me, but I'm physically shaking my head. And that's Irish Gage. Thanks, Capstone Games, for sending me a copy of this game. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening to the 5 by. If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild at number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links you can find on 5bygames.com. The 5 by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.